You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ray Russell is the author of The Dark Return of Time from Swan River Press. He's also one of the partners running Tartarus Press along with Rosalie Parker. He's also a musician and an artist. Thank you for speaking with me, Ray. Oh, you're very welcome. Ray, I wanted to talk to you first about your new novel, The Dark Return of Time, which is such an interesting work because it combines so deftly so many different kind of uh, feelings. You have a, a really tense thriller but you also have a sukkon of the fantastic woven in there. Talk about creating that uh, novel. Did it come from the characters, the out-of-place booksellers? It probably came from a dozen different places. Um, I've always wanted to write a novel, and I, I do see it as a novella. And for many years, I was put off writing because I wanted to write you know, the classic book. And then it was Ros about five or six years ago persuaded me to write a story um, which was potentially going to be published not, un not under my name, be under a pseudonym. And I felt kind of liberated by that um, because I thought if it was awful, no one was going to know it was me anyway. So I just wrote a story for fun and realized that that was actually the best way of telling a story. I've been trying too hard. And with The Dark Return of Time, I just thought I'll write something for fun that will include various elements that I enjoy. I don't know, there's a lot about it that it sort of reflects on my reading from teenage years in that there was always going to be something supernatural about it because that's what interests me. But I've always just loved good thrillers. And I do realise that there are reflections of all kinds of favourite books in there. There's certainly something of Roland Topol's The Tenant. I think I was even a sort of, uh, I started writing it having read um, an Alan Robbie uh, Grier book. Um, I don't know, I, th I think I was just having fun really. Well, talk about creating these characters, the booksellers who are selling English books in Paris. That's such an interesting decision on your part. Well, um, booksellers are fascinating people. Um, well, they always have been, and it's a real shame there aren't as many books, uh, bookshops around and you don't actually get to meet all these uh, weird and wonderful people who sell books like you used to because uh, the, the bookshops have just gone and you deal with sort of nameless people on the internet these days or faceless people on the internet. I've always just loved bookshops and the people associated with them, the, the customers and the, um, you know, the, the those strange people, the runners that used to uh, you know, buy and sell from bookshops and the owners themselves, yeah, fascinating people. Now, uh, you have a father and son who have a somewhat strained relationship, and there's uh, a mother in England. So talk about just that, the family tensions that you create. And, you know, the, the son is our, is our uh, main character, so talk about creating him and his, his interesting past that kind of bubbles up through this book. This book is about the past bubbling up. Yeah, I think he's a bit... He comes over initially, hopefully, as a bit of a sort of spoiled teenager. <laughs> um, he's a little older than that, and then you realise that he has got good reason for being um, pretty unhappy with his lot. 
um, because of his past with his previous with his, with his girlfriend, and he's in a position where he's trying to blame or find blame for her death, and it's been quite convenient to blame his mother. So, and his father realizes that that's not fair in the fact that he's kind of siding with his father and moving to Paris where the bookshop is and leaving his mother in London. Um, there's some real, realization as the, the story goes on that you know, on his part that perhaps he hasn't been entirely fair. Uh, he's looking for people to blame. I, I just, it's just one of those things, you, you set up characters and see where they go. And that's kind of what, what happens with um, most of my writing. I don't necessarily know what we'll end up with or what the characters are about until they've, um, you know, the story is finished. Well, I really like the way the plot plays out in this because it plays out in a couple of different ways. We have, you know, a, a criminal element that's woven in there very nicely. It's a, kind of like a very low-key, classic British crime novel. But it also has this supernatural element running through it, too. So talk about combining those two. Did you know what the supernatural element was going to be when you started the book? No, I didn't. Um, I had the idea of the character of Hopper, in fact, many, many years ago, um, but didn't do anything with him. The idea of somebody who had completely changed their personality and their past, or was attempting to. And then I think I saw something on TV about um, some poor chap working on the American Railroad who, um, just one of these sort of real left of center things that came up and he ended up having a spike go through his head. And he not only survived, but lived to a ripe old age, but it completely changed his personality and his character. And I, th I suddenly thought that's a way of um, having a character who has, yes, completely changed his story. Um, and there would be all kinds of tensions there if he had lost his memory and then discovered that his past wasn't actually what he wanted it to be. You know, suddenly to discover your past is um, you know, really quite violent and horrible. Um, but then it's a case of he's trying to discover what, what his past was really about, being in denial about it, but is he going to accept it eventually? I think you do a great job, too, of creating tension in this book. There's a, <clears throat> a woman who comes into the young man's life, and I, she also has some mysteries attached to her. So, uh, And there's a little bit of a romantic tension there. So talk about uh, creating her. Well, again, she sort of came out of the story and sort of gained in character and richness as time went on. And it, I think it was, might even be Todd um, Nimi, who is our fellow screenwriter in turning it into a screenplay, who pointed out that in fact she is in many ways a central character and she was there before the story started. She has got um, a backstory and her story will continue potentially um, even you know, beyond the book, although without giving away any spoilers, it's a bit ambiguous what happens at the end. And uh, I, I think Todd was right. She is actually um, sort of more than any other character there, the sort of motivating force behind the whole, whole story. You mentioned Todd Nemi, a, a mm. screenwriter. One of the things that I was thinking I was reading this book is that novellas, that kind of short novel, long novella length, is perfect length for a movie. And I could really see this as a really tight little thriller. Is that happening? Yes, um, hopefully. Uh, fingers crossed. Um, there's uh, a producer called Ian Reid, who, um, in fact, it was Todd who got in co contact with him, um, has expressed an interest in, in filming it, um, and filming it quite soon. 
Um, oh, that sounds great. Hopefully, That's fast. The, hopefully this spring in Paris. Um, we can't say much more because everything's up in the air. Um, but it, yeah, it's all looking very positive. That um, sounds like a great reason to spring, say, spend spring in Paris. <laughs> we're going to do our best to go out there. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it just seems amazing that. Um, I mean, ro uh, what happened initially was that um, Todd wrote an initial screenplay, and then Ros and I. Um, together worked on it and just ideas that you sort of kick around you know over dinner one evening um, suddenly someone in a few months time is going to be putting a lot of money into and a lot of people are going to be acting out these scenes and bits of dialogue it's, I don't know it's both very exciting and slightly frightening as well <laughs> you also do art and music I'd like you to talk about uh, you know the crossover for you between the writing and the publishing and the, the music in particular? Well, all, all of these things have been hobbies and fun, and some things have actually, like the publishing, which was just the same as uh, the drawing and the music and everything else, um, just things that I did, and we're very lucky that the publishing has actually turned into a, a full-time job for myself and Rosalie. Unfortunately, the, um, yeah, the music and the art hasn't, haven't turned into full-time jobs, but I don't know. If, some of the fun goes out of these things if you actually are pressured to um, produce. I'm not saying that the publishing isn't great fun, but it, it is also a job. Whereas um, something like the drawing or the music, if I had to come up with something once a month like we come up with books, I think I would um, lose my interest very quickly. <laughs> because they're, they're just fun. Um, and the making videos and things like that is just stuff that that we do really and yes there are crossovers we've made some videos for some of our books and um, we've incorporated sort of music in the videos and um, my artwork has gone on some of the books especially early, early Tartarus Press books um, yeah it just makes the whole thing more interesting really now are you working on, on another novella or a follow-up to the dark return of time uh, not a follow-up um, I have another novella hopefully if, um, if Peter and Nicky at PS Publishing have remembered that they're going to be publishing my novella, there's another one coming out sometime next year. Now, uh, Pierce Publishing, who are they? They're not familiar to me, are they? Oh, right, PS, um, our publishers, uh, they're, uh, I was going to say Hull, that's not where they are now. I know Pete comes from Hull originally. Um, they're, they're still North Yorkshire, aren't they, these days? Um, they publish science fiction, fantasy, horror, um, Which of those will it be, or all of them? Um, well, the, the great thing about PS is that they do um, straddle all the genres. Oh, this so is PS Publishing? Yes. Oh, yeah. well, I, I know PS Publishing. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, yep. they're fabulous. I was obsessively collecting their stuff until it like was breaking the bank. I, I think Sometimes I have a first Breaking your floorboards as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know at this point. There can't be many people who have shelves uh, that can take every PS book because they have been pretty prolific. Yeah. Um, talk. A I wanted to talk a little bit about Tartarus Press, which makes just such wonderful books. They're really beautiful. Um, talk about just deciding to start publishing. I mean, the news in the publishing world has not been like, please come out and join us as we like sink our Titanic. Um, well, I, I'm not quite sure how much, I want to say, thought has gone into Tartarus. That's not fair. There's a <laughs> heck of a lot of thought, but it, it was a hobby 
that um, slightly got out of hand. Uh, I was publishing a few little booklets, and even in the early days, Rosalie was involved because um, the first couple of booklets I produced, um, Rosalie snuck into work and photocopied them for me. Um, and there just came a point where, in fact, it was when our son, Tim, was born, we decided that I would stay at home and be a house husband and would carry on doing the publishing, would have more time to do that. So I was then sort of a house husband and working sort of on Tartarus, close to sort of full time. Um, and then they got to the point where I had too much work on and we took the risk. Rosalie gave up her well-paid proper job and we decided we'd try and make a living out of the publishing. And luckily, it's, um, yeah, we survive, which is really good. Well, I, you guys have said one of the things that you guys have is a really unique vibe to your books. And I'd like you to just take a stab at describing what a Tartarus Press book is. Well, I think when we, the very first, uh, well, the, the first pr proper hardbacks we published, I wanted them to look like uh, books I was collecting at the time, which were sort of um, the limited editions of writers like Arthur Macken that came out in the 1920s sort of and 30s the large paper editions you'd get in very short runs and because I wasn't that confident of the artwork um, I think the initial ones didn't have a great deal of artwork and then we started having little vignettes on the front um, but we wanted them to look like sort of proper 1930s old-fashioned books we even made sure that our dust jackets weren't laminated because I had this idea that if they looked grubby and mucky, they might look as though they'd been around for sort of 80 years. <laughs> um, so, of course, customers and collectors immediately put them in um, sort of Mylar or Broad Art site jackets to, to keep them pristine. Um, and that we have slowly evolved from there and that we've, we've, we have used other artists. Um, and recently we've used um, a great artist called Stephen Clark, who has been producing artwork for uh, Robert Aikman books. Um, and we've got the, the, the vignettes are slightly larger than they were, and they're now in colour. Mm -hmm. um, so that they are, they are all this sort of a, a slow move on from that sort of 1930s look, but they still look sort of pretty old-fashioned. Well, I want to talk to you too about your editorial choices. Uh, I believe you. I'm, alas, I don't have them, but I believe you do the to die for uh, current editions of uh, the Arthur Macken, right? You started out with those, didn't well, you? Mecham is sort of still my sort of great literary love, I think, and I, I'm a great collector of Mecham, and he was one of the first people we published. Mm -hmm. We were very lucky that um, we were very friendly with Janet Mecham, his daughter, who gave us permission uh, to publish various things um, by her father and um, was incredibly encouraging of all we did back in those days. Um, the world changes, and Macken is, uh, he's not quite out of copyright yet, but there's a lot of other people publishing Macken, and very recently Penguin have now started to bring out um, uh, Macken, and he's been published by the University of Wales, and our Tales of Horror and the Supernatural, which was our sort of um, standard book for years, we've sadly had to let go out of print, because oh, really? um, there's, there's a lot of competition. Mm -hmm. But uh, the companion volume, Ritual and Other Stories, is, is still well in print and contains the rest of his uh, short fiction. And we have sort of three or four other books by him. And we're hoping, um, well, I'm sure we can reveal exclusively, that we're going to be reprinting The House of Souls, um, oh, wow. which 
mops up again a lot of the sort of essential mechanisms like the great god pan mm. and uh, the three imposters so yeah i don't think the tartarus without arthur mackin wouldn't be right mm. he's always been there well you've also managed to do some you know the wonderful work with the aikman books what i remember about uh Tartarus Press is getting those Aikman books and just being wowed by them, how great the stories were, how nice the volumes were. Talk about coming, you know, uh, getting hold of the Aikman books and publishing them for the first time and your current uh, uh, project of publishing them all as a, in the collections as they originally were. Well, I'd heard of Aikman for a number of years without reading him and a good friend of ours, David Tibet, uh, mentioned him and I said I still hadn't got round to reading Aikman and he said well the trouble is once you've read Robert Aikman you'll be wanting to publish him. Uh, the very next day he sent round all three, sorry all eight uh, um, collections in first editions from his own collection saying you need to read these and we were just like everyone else blown away by you know Robert Aikman's amazing writing um, and just the, the conversations we had for hours and hours on end about how we could actually reprint them, um, knowing that having talked to various people, everyone had different volumes. People would have sort of two or three different volumes, but they wouldn't be the same as other people's. At the time, we thought, well, we'll, we'll, we'll create a reference set. Uh, we'll put everything in two volumes. In fact, I think at one point we thought we'd do a three-volume work. It was a way of making them available not as cheaply as possible necessarily, but as conveniently as possible for everyone. And if you already have a couple of volumes, you wouldn't feel that hard done by. Um, so I do feel that it was a compromise, that two volume set. Um, mm -hmm. And at the time we were publishing runs of sort of two or 300 copies of any book. And you know, taking two or three years, four or five years sometimes to sell out. And the, the sums only worked with Robert Aikman if we did well, I think we did 750 of our first run and 250 of the second run. And it's strange to remember now that Aikman wasn't that well known at the time. So we, we took a fairly big risk as far as we were concerned, which paid off. Mm. Um, and we were also very lucky that the rights became available just as we asked and we were interested. But I think we've always felt there was a certain amount of unfinished business. So. Um, being able to reprint all eight volumes and the two volumes of autobiography in the last few years, individually um, resetting them, um, redesigning them, we kind of feel like we've finally done him justice, which I never felt we'd, we'd done before. It's absolutely true. They're just stunning, and it really gives the reader a chance to immerse in each volume, which is really quite nice. I mean, I have both sets, and so it's really wonderful. now. One of the things I think you're doing that's great is you have brought forth a lot of new writers. I mean, uh, your Tartarus Press is just a great place to explore new writers. Talk about your editorial vision and how you how you get people and who you select and how you select. Do they come to you? Do you go to well, them? Well, this is a question you ought to be asking Rosalie more than me. Okay. Uh, because contemporary authors, it's very much... Uh, Rosalie is the one who... I mean, we have an, an open submissions policy and mm -hmm. Rosalie is the one who will read through um, a heck of a lot of manuscripts, uh, electronic manuscripts these days, which in some ways is a, a blessing because we don't end up with um, piles and piles of uh, stacks of um, uh, you know, A4 paper of people <laughs> sort of print <laughs> their novels, um, but it makes it a lot easier for people just to sort of um, 
blanket send stuff out and, and Ros reads through a lot. Um, I, you'll have to ask her what the percentage is but it's something like sort of one or two percent of everything she reads will actually get through. Less. Probably less, yeah. Mm. I've been speaking with Ray Russell. His new book is The Dark Return of Time out from Swan River Press. He's the publisher of Tartarus Press. Thanks for joining me, Ray. Thank you. We're going to go over now to Rosalie Parker, is the author of The Old Knowledge, originally published by Swan River Press and now available from Tartarus Press. She's also the editor over at Tartarus Press. Thanks for joining me, Rosalie. No problem. Let's talk a little bit about your work in The Old Knowledge, which is a superb collection of pristine stories that really do a great job of exploring. Uh, a, you have a, a unique vision of the world that is um, so crisp that the supernatural and the natural are become almost indistinguishable. I'd like you to talk about creating those stories, just your what your vision is and when you sit down to write. Um, good question. I don't think I really know what my vision <laughs> is, but um, I think I think I try to write as clearly and simply as I can. And sometimes there's a sort of juxtaposition between the style of the writing and the things I'm writing about, which I think is, you know, an interesting thing for me. Um, I don't know, I, I trained as an archaeologist and I worked as an archaeologist for 10 years before I got into publishing and um, I think that sort of knowledge of other cultures, other times, is the sort of thing I'm interested in. The fact that at other times um, completely different worldviews were in operation and were seen as the norm. Um, I think that's what you capture in your stories, you know, I hadn't thought about that before but that's really, I think, the essence of what you capture because um, somebody else, at other times, somebody else could look at the world and have a vision that would be informed by gods and demons and ghosts and ancestors and rites, where we see everything as kind of a giant clockwork of science and transmissions and waves and quantum particles and entanglements and whatever. But the, the you capture the kind of inner force of what the human vision is that determines how we see the world. And no matter what the age, no matter what the time period is, a lot of that force is determined by our emotions. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and I think I'm also interested in the fact that there are many people have an alternative explanation for the world and not the, um, the scientific mm -hmm. establishment sort of explanation. Um, you know, the losing side of history is still an interesting <laughs> one, and kind of quite a lot of my characters are on the losing side, I think. That's an interesting way to put it, yes, because the vectors the scientists have written the history, but there is another side too. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the longest story in your, in your collection, The Rain. Mm. This is a, a story that hits home to me as we sit here in this remote Rainton pub that <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I find myself in. Uh, talk about placing an urban character in a rural setting and watching what happens as her emotions unfurl. Yes, I suppose um, the the setting is, um, how can I put it, fairly similar to the village that we live in. Um, but the character, as an urban character, I suppose I, it was, I was interested in 
a character who is basically in the wrong as far as everybody in the village is concerned and she can't do anything about that they're going to think that about her whether she likes it or not it i mean by in the wrong that you know she her sort of vision her way of living isn't really going to be seen as sort of particularly something that that people are think is a good thing but no i i, I suppose um again it's that sort of interest in um, the difference between one person's view of something and other people having a completely different view of it in this case, um, sort of a village's view of life, as opposed to a sort of a more urban um, understanding. It's a great does a great job of kind of uh, closing both the reader and the character. It's like running down a, a narrowing prose yeah. corridor. I think you do a great job of that. Talk about just the, the way you develop your prose. Is it um, like does it come out like that, or uh, off the top of your tip of your pen? Uh, no, no, it doesn't. No, no. As I said before, I'm I, I'm looking for kind of clarity. I'm you know I'm trying to find the most efficient way of saying something a lot of the time, but it doesn't come out like that. No, I I do sort of have a sort of multi-layered way of working. Thank goodness for the word processor. That's what I say. Yeah, I think it's. The, I think that uh, one of the ultimate conclusions looking back at the 20th century is the transformation of uh, the written word from pre-word processor and post-word processor. It's changed the way people write considerably and unalterably. Um, I, I love the story Spirit Solutions. That's a, a really quite a bit of fun. So, uh, it, and you wrote that for an anthology. Did you, was that, did that just uh, come very quickly to you or? Um, I think that most of it came quite quickly oh. and then but I didn't know what to do with the end uh -huh. and that that took a bit more time and I had a big I had a big deadline as well so I, I mean I like I really had to get it done and dusted very quickly um, so <laughs> for it to be included in the anthology so yeah I, I sort of it, it just came to me I mean quite often when we go on a lot we do a lot of walking in the Yorkshire Dales and sometimes I get the um, the, the sudden feeling that I've just found the solution to a story and I think that's what happens in that case just by walking and not thinking about it. <laughs> that, well that's interesting. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that it's any kind of automatic you know writing or ending to a story it's just I think the brain works sometimes. The brain works when we're not thinking yeah, when about you're not stuff. Thinking about it, yeah. uh, there are a couple of stories in here about gardening so I'm wondering you <laughs> thinking you might be a gardener? Um, yes um, I'm not a very good gardener really um, especially at the moment, I never seem to get the time to do it. But, but yes, um, I mean, in, in the garden, I sort of set myself a challenge to write a horror story about gardening because <laughs> I couldn't really think of one at the time mm -hmm. that I'd read. But that's that's sort of it was a kind of exercise of of, of um, just trying to think of as many gardening analogies as I put into a horror story, and it just yeah that one it's, came very easily actually. It's just, very creepy. Yeah. I, I think one. <laughs> Ray might be worried. <laughs> uh, now, you also mentioned that you were a, uh, had worked in the archaeology, and that comes out in a couple of stories too, the, uh, the Chactonbury Ring and uh, the Old Knowledge. So talk about using your, you know, your uh, scientific knowledge to write stories that undermine science. Yes. Um, well, I suppose um, I, I, when I worked in archaeology, my job was very much to do with the, the sort of empirical observation of, of archaeology and um, 
and the scientific exploration of the past. But there was a side of me that is how I got interested in archaeology in the first place, which was more interested in the the strangeness and the yeah the, the kind of um, occult almost interest in the past and the, and the archaeology and that many people are interested in and so yeah I suppose I wasn't sort of setting out to undermine science really though mm -hmm. I, I'm sort of a very much a, a Darwinist <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's just I, I just like to think that there are alternative ways of looking at things that's all and they're often quite good to put into stories. You have a lot of fun with a very famous uh, horror trope in the supply teacher. <laughs> I thought it just it, one thing about that trope. I have to say that every time you think that you've seen everything that can possibly be done with it, somebody comes along and proves you wrong. <laughs> and and yours is, I think, the most original thing I've seen in a long time. And it's almost kind of sweet. Yeah, that really was a bit of fun, actually. I, I did write that as a piece of fun. Um, um, I mean, I had, um, I had been giving blood for a while, so that's probably where the inspiration came from. And in the Cook story, that's a really interesting story just in terms of creating, again, this kind of... Uh, one of the things that I encounter in your stories, and also out here in kind of the wilds of England, are, you know, isolation. Isolation is an interesting... Uh, theme in your stories? Well obviously isolation is also useful for a story because mm -hmm. you can get your characters in one place and keep them there and <laughs> you know they can't escape <laughs> but um, yeah isolation. We'll talk about creating the uh, this this house the manor house and you know the themes are, again there's some nice gardening uh, uh, material that comes up there too. Yes and the cooking obviously mm -hmm. um, well we it, it came about because we went on a trip to the Peak District, which is where Ray and I met, which is a place very much like the Yorkshire Dales, mm. quite isolated. And um, we, 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 our car broke down on the way there and it was sort of, we got it partly mended and it was chugging along and we, we kind of got stuck in a valley and it was, we didn't know if we were going to get home really. Um, and we, we sort of, um, it was one of those holidays where everything was closed. So um, <laughs> we tried to go to a very famous large house called Haddon Hall where they filmed um, sort of Jane Eyre adaptations and things and it was closed so we couldn't go but it was sort of the outside of that that gave me the idea for writing a story in a in a manor house set in a manor house in the Peak District. And are you I have to ask vis-a-vis uh, -vis the picture if you're uh, a garage sale uh, treasure se seeker um, I'm interested in antiques, yeah. yeah, yeah. And in fact, the picture in the, that story, we do have that picture. Oh, so, you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Do you think it's that old, or you know who it's? Who's the artist is? Um, I don't. I'm not completely sure who the artist is, but I hope it's brought you. <laughs> I trust you haven't been getting uh, uh, scary messages uh, via the internet about it. No, not yet. I, I live in hope. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, I wanted to talk to you, too, about your work for Tartarus Press. If you're the person who's picking the new writers, talk about what your editorial vision is, how much is shaped by Mackin and Aikman, and it clearly is, but you go beyond that, too. We've obviously started by publishing the classics of supernatural and um, horror fiction, like Arthur Mackin, 
and lots of others <laughs> I can't remember at the moment <laughs> but we realized that um, uh, yeah there's a limited supply and also we were interested in in sort of maybe trying to find some of the writers who would contemporary writers who would have a reputation in the future that's why we started publishing contemporary writers um, first of all on quite an ad hoc sort of basis and and then we started getting submissions from people and then we sort of developed a submissions policy which was op very much an open policy so um, we weren't we don't commission anything really mm -hmm. we we just wait to see what comes in wow that and must do you get how many manuscripts do you get a week um a week i don't know i mean a year um it it's up to a thousand a year but that includes individual short story submissions because we obviously do a strange tales our anthology mm -hmm. sort of every other year or so um but we get we get a lot and they do all get looked at and read um and everybody gets a reply <laughs> But out of that, we are really only publishing three or four, maybe five books a year. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, we're picking a very few writers. Well, and you've done such great work. I mean, Angela Slatter and Anne Syl Sylvie Salzman, you yeah. seem to be, uh, do, that's part of your classic work too, some of the translations. So talk about uh, choosing some of those, uh, the French translations. Well, yes, I mean, we, we, um, uh, uh, we we just sort of did our research and and looked to see um, what we could find and we also we did actually commission some of the translations from um, Ian White, who translated some of the the French um, works that we've published, um, and and Thomas Owen, the Belgian writer. But yeah, again, it's it's sort of it's about quality. I mean, it, it's not we're not kind of publishing in a narrow vein really. We're mm -hmm. we're interested in in decadent supernatural horror just strange we're, it, it's sort of the quality that we're interested in really mm -hmm. and that's the thing that we're we're sort of very much concentrating on when we're looking to publish a book well, I think that's what makes publishers like you so important is that you guys have a great taste and a vision and on nothing no internet no giant publishing corporation nothing can change or replace that and that will always be extremely valuable and I think no matter what changes the technology goes through that people like you are going to be you know critical of critical importance in bringing good fiction because I know when I pick up a Tardwares book it's going to be a good book it's, there's just not a question about well it's, that. it's very gratifying that that some of the authors we have sort of um, picked up early on like mm -hmm. Angela Slatter and Simon Strancis and Mark Valentine and various other people that they are going on to you know publish with other other presses and bigger presses than us and that's you know for us that's what we want is good mm -hmm. um, but yeah we um, I suppose we have embraced modern te technology to some extent because we are um, publishing ebooks and we are publishing paperbacks now which is sort of a relatively new thing for us let's talk a little bit about the ebooks because I think that one of the things that's nice about an ebook is that it, it actually is for me as I travel it's certainly convenient to just carry this so talk about bringing readers in with ebooks but bringing them to your hardcover books as well with the hardcovers we obviously have um, quite a lot of customers who are interested in collecting mm -hmm. Tartarus books and the hardbacks um, you know they're not cheap books they're quite expensive so it demands a certain amount of commitment to buy them but with that sort of our staple that's how we've how we started publishing and how Ray started publishing in the early days 
the internet has certainly helped us um, find new customers all over the world. And in fact, we sell about two thirds of our hardback books go to the rest of the world and not the UK. Mm -hmm. um, Ebooks. Um, Are you making money on that? Not much. <laughs> Ray is shaking his yeah. head. <laughs> it's a different, it's a completely different market. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, some people are interested in buying the ebooks and they want them for convenience. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, I'm very much, and well, both of us very much believe that you know what's in the book is obviously fairly important. It's, um, well, it's nice. It's nice too because um, if you're a collector, you can have your pristine, untouched book, and you can look at it and read it, you know, in, you know, your library. But if you're going to the taco house to eat a burrito, mm -hmm. maybe you don't want to bring your beautiful book, no matter, even if you have a Brodart, I can't tell you, I mean, I have more than a few books that might have salsa bits in, on them. So the, the e-book is a good way around that. And the paperbacks, I think, um we, we tend to publish a paperback, uh, we, t we publish a hardback first, mm -hmm. a hardback edition, and then we public a, publish a paperback afterwards if we think that the book merits it and we'll, we'll make the sales. Um, and they're a harder sell, really, aren't they? Are but they, they do, yeah, they do sort of, they do kind of gradually trot out to customers. Well, they're really beautifully done paperbacks. I mean, I love, I have a copy of uh, The Complete Symphonies of Adolf Hitler by Reggie Oliver, which is a book I think that uh, if you could get it into the right bookstores in the United States would just sell like hotcakes. I mean, how how can anybody resist a book with that title? I, I, <laughs> I don't know. So, I mean, I really, I'm a big fan of some of your writers. So talk about it. How did you come in first uh, come into contact with Reggie Oliver? I think you need to talk to Ray about Reggie, actually. You, you're more into that than me in the early Reggie, aren't you? Yeah, I'm not sure to say really, only that um, anyone who's met Reggie knows that he's a really nice chap, um, incredibly um, erudite, and he's a very talented writer. Um, he's an actor too, isn't he? Yes, I, I don't think he's done a great deal of acting recently, but what he's been concentrating on more is doing monologues of his stories. Oh, really? Which he, he presents them as you know, dramatic readings, um, learns them off by heart, and uh, he is he's quite spellbinding when you see him do it. Uh, that sounds, uh, there's, a, there's certainly a market for that. Charles Dickens did well with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he's, um, I mean, he's a, a very nice guy. He's written um, quite a lot of short stories in a, relatively sort of short frame of time, sort of about 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he, he's, it's just quality writing, really. Uh, I think that that right there sums up Tartarus Press. No matter what it has, no matter what the genre or what you guys are doing, it's, uh, it's the quality that counts. Well, we, we do our best. I've been speaking with Ray Russell and Rosalie Parker about Tartarus Press, The Old Knowledge by Rosalie, and The Dark Return of Time by Ray Russell from Swan River Press. Thanks for joining me, Rosalie and Ray. Thank you.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.